We are back with another episode of the Black Box Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed. And I'm your host, John. And this episode, we have on a guest, James Woodall, from, or he is the founder and owner of Woodall Wealth Management, which pretty much started from him trading commodities and futures in an agriculture class in college. And that kind of just changed the trajectory of his career. So we get into, you know, his business, how it started. And how he, you know, traverses like interactions with clients and onboards new clients and what he recommends to them, which are, he targets more, you know, like average middle class, less than 10 million net worth families. So I think it's really good, um, really good knowledge, really good tips. And it's a good overall episode for financial literacy. Yeah. And also, yeah, just a fun conversation. But thanks again, James, for coming on and uh, let's hop right into it. Yep. Thanks, James. Hey, guys. Just wanted to shout out Zencaster, our platform of choice for recording remotely with our guests. Uh, they're sponsoring this episode, so tune in later to hear more about some really great offers. Hey, y'all. We're really excited to tell you about Black Ice, the Black-owned jewelry business owned by Sean Moore, uh, our previous guest on the Black Box podcast. If you think if you think about it, Black Ice and like Black Box, it's like it's it's almost like it's meant to be. Oh. Exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, we like to focus on investing in the show. So, you know, we kind of look at it as we're partnering up with a asset class, you know, jewelry is considered an investment. And with the, you know, stock market and crypto being pretty volatile right now, and most for the most part going down, um, jewelry, especially precious metals, you know, gold and silver, those tend to preserve their value really well. So, you know, that's also another reason why we think it's a, a good opportunity. But also, you know, I've worked with Sean in the past, I got a gift from my mother, actually, for Mother's Day, it was a pretty, a relatively custom piece, nothing crazy. But you know, Sean was quick, he was easy, he was responsive, the price was fair. And, you know, we just met up and transaction was easy and my mom loved the gift. So yeah, if this all sounds good to you, check out Black Ice's website at Black Ice NYC um, and at all socials. And uh, there's a V instead of an A for the black. So as you guys are probably used to with little letter substitutions by us, But you could find stock goods there. And Sean also specializes in custom goods with quick turnaround times. Yeah, uh, Sean does great custom pieces. I've seen a bunch of them on his social media. But um, yeah, he's also good for sourcing, you know, like watches, specific Rolexes, anything like that that you're looking for. He can also get you a better price than, you know, if you're going to, you know, a bigger name shop or someone that you don't really know that might try to gouge you on the price. So Along with that, it's also supporting an upcoming entrepreneur. He's had a lot of success. He just celebrated his one-year anniversary of the business, had a really nice party. And um, let's get back to the show. All right, James, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the Black Box podcast. I guess uh, to get started, can we just have you introduce yourself? Yeah, definitely, Maude, John. You know, thanks for inviting me. So... Uh, a little bit about myself as I run a firm, Woodall Wealth Management. We're an advisory firm that focuses on family stewards and family businesses. And what makes us a little bit more unique is that I'm not here to sell people anything or anything like that. It's really to build 
a lifelong relationship with my clients' families and their businesses. So uh, what makes it a little bit unique is we're creating what's called family offices for folks that generally don't have those. And a family office is generally for someone that has like $50 million and up in assets and they need someone to go like buy their airplane or buy, hey, I need you to go like manage my 12 properties that I have and tell you right or something like that. Or here we're more focused on the normal, you know, people that we call in the industry the mass affluent. So typically people with less than $10 million is kind of my target audience and really those that are trying to build and create wealth for their family. And so a lot of, a lot of what I'm here to talk about today is get that started. Um, a little bit about my background is I actually fell into the finance industry through an agriculture class uh, where I learned futures and commodities trading for the ag folks because I went to Texas Tech, which has the largest capital or largest cotton farming in the world just outside the city limits. So I learned it from there, worked at a few big shops, uh, learned what not to do, what to do, and then uh, decided to start running firm and get up and running. And here I am today, and it's, it's been a blast learning about it and having a good chat with you guys. Awesome. Um, all right. I guess uh, because you mentioned it subtly, I will ask you to just explain the agri- the tie between agriculture and your current career like what was what was the path for that so so texas tech is like it basically started as an agricultural school so they have a really strong ag program and originally i was in uh, mechanical engineering i did all the hard classes like cal 3 differential equations physics 2 and all that stuff and i'm like i hate this and i was a solid c student so I tried to get into, ironically, the financial planning program at Tech, and they said, your GPA is 0.01 below, go kick rocks. So I got all frustrated, ended up getting a degree in uh, international economics and finance. And uh, there was no one that did international economics. I think I was the only person to graduate with that degree in my graduation class. Like, no one does it. But one of the things that happened was I started taking these intensive classes, and there's like, they're like, take econometrics or a futures and commodities class. I was like, I have no idea what econometrics is. So let's do futures and commodities and just see what that is. Well, it turns out it's in the ag program and I'm literally with cotton farmers and there's sons and daughters and we're in this class and I'm learning how the markets actually work, how to do technical analysis, read the charts, understand how to create, like and trade futures and options and, and you can create like synthetic trades and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I learned that from there. And uh, I was so good at that class. I failed it the first time and then actually took it again and took it way more seriously and, and learned a lot. And actually that course, basically an ad course, is because I got pretty good day trading stuff. And I got lucky a handful of times, uh, got me into working at a large broker dealer because of my trading activity. So it's kind of crazy how I went from like engineering to economics to an ag class is somehow counted and that's how I yeah. fell into the finance industry. I got, I got one question from that. Cause I also like to trade too. I do some options trading in my free time. Um, was it like, because you had traded and showed that you understand what you've learned that you were able to get your foot in the door with some of these places, or was it like your actual trading success that impressed people to get you into the door? I think both. Um, so I had a 300% return in three weeks, which was pretty cool, That's good. but it wasn't real money. That was the hard part, right? I was like, oh, cool. I made like 300 grand. It wasn't real money. Was it like paper um, account or? 
Yeah, so it's basically a paper account they use. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was was focused specifically on uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and something else. Uh, So you really couldn't do stocks or anything. It wasn't the point of the class. It was really commodities. Um, But, yeah, that's what helped me get in the door. But now if you're looking at getting in the finance industry and you're in college, uh, they changed the rules up a bit where you can take what's called the securities entrance or securities industry exam or something like that, the SIE. And if you can take that, now anyone can take it. You don't have to be a part of the industry to do it. That will give you a leg up getting into any of these companies because that's less money they have to spend on you training, less risk on you failing it. And if you go in there, that's a good way to get started because at that point, you're in. You're halfway in the door and they know you're serious about doing this, not to show or not to show up. Gotcha. And then uh, did you continue to trade in those other positions that you were working at? So that's kind of a funny story. So I was actually uh, hired on and ended up being a mentor of mine still to this day to do international trading. Um, Ironically, the night before I worked at this company, the, uh, the accounting system more or less broke down. And they had about 40 interns, maybe a little less. And they said, okay, cool. Like you're basically your employees or, but you're a full-time intern is what they kind of called us. And they said, okay, after six months to a year, uh, we're going to get you different roles and whatever in the operations area. So I actually learned what cost basis was and tax reporting, uh, how to learn it real quick. Cause I, I didn't know what it was. And we spent the first six months of working, just fixing all these issues. And that's when I started seeing all the accounts and kind of seeing what worked, what didn't work. And, um, just, without even realizing it and graining a lot. So it got me in the door and they said, Hey, you know what? You're an intern, you're expendable. We're going to put you in this area and fix it. And it's actually probably the best thing because it's at the very end of the entire process is the taxes. And I saw everything. Wow. Okay. Um, so like in, in your time in college, I know you said that you, had originally done engineering. Do you think that that part of your like, uh, ed, like school experience, do you think that provided any value for what you're doing now? I think it taught me to know my limitations, to be honest with you. Um, really in my position, it, it does help doing the statistics side of things understanding the math maybe a little bit more does help um but it really kind of helped me understand my limitations and learn how to learn like high school was easy high school is a joke uh college i actually had to learn how to study and it took me until probably my junior years when i changed uh degrees to learn how to study uh so that's really what it taught me which now moving forward in this career you, you have to always keep reading. You have to keep learning. So with the CFP certification, you have to have 20 hours of continuing education. So now it's made me like now more curious and more willing to learn. And of course I read as much as I can. And if you can do that, that's what give you that leap ahead and that, that advantage. So I guess it kind of taught me to learn really. Well, awesome. Now you're, now you're like a lifetime learner. You'd say, well, yeah, I feel like that's also yeah. something I mean, maybe it's depending on the career, but I don't know if I could even speak on it that much. But, uh, like, I, I think the way you, that you said it in high school, it's really easy. You don't really have to study. You don't have to learn how to become efficient at obtaining information and internalizing it. 
but then when you get to college that's like a really valuable skill but then i also feel like when you obtain that skill and know how to do it well you want to learn because it almost becomes easier because you know what you need to take in and what resources you need to gain the information that you're like all right now i can just go get whatever i want and learn it to some extent right a hundred percent a hundred percent is knowing how to find information and quality information uh, there's a great book out there called The Fifth Discipline by Peter Sinji. Uh, I'll be the first to say it's dry. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is we're running organizations and learning how organizations operate. At the end of the day, the only thing that will give you an advantage is creating that learning culture. Because we can always race down to zero, race down to the bottom, or keep innovating. If you create, let's say, product A, well, I can copy product A within reason, and then now we're at par again. So how do you get better to keep having your organizations learn? A good example at scale is look at the US military, we'll basically build everything, then China just says, okay, we're gonna copy it. It's not as good for things that they can't always copy, but they literally have, I think it's like the Black Hawk helicopter is the exact same. I think now like the C-17 flying, whatever it is, same thing as well. So they just copy it. It may not be the same, so they don't have to do that. So then we have to keep innovating. Yeah. Same thing in business, same thing in life. So that's a really fascinating thing to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. And I was going to say in what you're doing now, like wealth management, I feel like that also comes into play because if the more you know and the more laws that you're aware of and the tax efficiencies that you've come across, like that's only going to help your clients more and then help you be successful, right? Oh, 100%. Uh, day in, day out. So I used to kind of consult with advisors that I worked with one guy who's literally been doing this for 50 years, like every day, never took a day off. And Mel is a great guy. But all he knows is to be a broker for just stocks. And so I'd ask him questions like, hey, what? Because financial planning as a technology is fairly new. I'd say, hey, what do you know about this? Or how do you understand the gaps? Like, how do you leverage insurance or tax efficiency? And he's like, what? Well, I don't have to do that. My job is to buy the best stocks for my clients. Yeah. And there's a good argument for that. But yeah, you have to be able to learn. There's so much new technology coming out. Like, I recently learned about ETFs that are called buffered ETFs, where they protect the first 10% of losses. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. So it's a bond alternative. That's cool. Because now, we like bonds are down 16%. Uh, this year and they may go down lower as we keep raising rates well now i need to go be able to learn and find a new alternative and so how do you go find that how do you be curious and explore it and then find good quality information and not on tiktok <laughs> i that, i was actually yeah. just just going to ask like where where do you find the information like where do you find your information and what do you think of like because there's a, I feel like there's a lot of like quick financial tips and financial pages on TikTok and on Instagram and even even like the our black box channel like John makes some really great uh, like finance content for for our followers. What do you think of overall like what you see on social media compared to what you see on your resources? It's it's a mixed bag, and I think it's what makes it difficult. Um, I've noticed a trend, and I've had a few people on some other podcasts bring this up with TikTok in particular, is that there's this trend that it's not cool to work. It's not cool to invest. You don't need to do that. Live for the moment. 
well, not really. That's actually terrible advice. Um, but then you see other people that are trying to combat that saying, hey, you know, buying boring mutual funds or ETFs and planning for the long term is also great. So I look at it as when I'm getting the information, one, am I getting it from experts and certified experts? Like a CFA designation is probably, there's a debate between the CFA and the CFP. So CFA is a certified financial analyst and it takes a minimum three years to get and the pass rate's like 2% overall. Something crazy low. It's yeah. pretty difficult. Uh, if a CFA is talking to me about an investment, I'm going to learn more and listen a little bit more about them because they have the credentials and the credibility. Just candidly. Um, same thing with the CFP. Not to say there's not a good information out there. Like, John, you're probably, I'm sure you're giving out good information. I try. <laughs> you got to look at, it. okay, what is the, you know, do they have a background in it or where are they getting their information or what's the reason why they're giving it out? What do they get out of it, right? And if it's to, hey, I'm giving out quality information to make my podcast bigger, cool. I can rely on that. And then also you look through other resources. Um, like I use wholesalers a lot. So they're going to be the experts at their particular investment tool. And I go, okay, cool. Well, knowing what you know, like tell me exactly how it works. Okay, I know you're trying to sell me something. You're going to make money. But does it make sense for me and my clients? And then I go and look back through other resources and then just kind of compare, you know, read between the lines, see what you can find. And then at times you just got to make your best educated guess. And that that's just unfortunate life. Not We don't always have the perfect answer, but at least you can find something pretty close. I, yeah, I agree with that. Oh, I'm ever going to go. You know, I was going to say, um, I feel like it depends is probably the most common answer to questions just in general, just because whenever it's things are always conditional, like, uh, like if it, if you're in a specific scenario or like maybe like what you said about intent, I think is probably also pretty important. Like if, if someone's making content with the sole purpose of monetization, like how great is that content really going to be um, type of thing? Uh, but John, I'm sorry. Oh, I no, 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 I was pretty much going to add on in the same type of way, but yeah, especially social media, it's just mixed because I mean, you're dealing with the fact that people want to maybe, you know, profit off like some type of service that they're trying to sneak in there. So usually those don't have much back behind them because they're usually just leading you up to like, Hey, you know, if you make this new Amazon store, we'll build the store for you, fill it with products or whatever. Like no one's going to hand you free money. Why wouldn't they just make the store themselves? But there's also the other side where it's people that are learning and new too, that could also be putting out slightly like misinformed information as well. So that's why it's also hard because they could mean well, and they're trying to do the best, but they might've just took it from someone else you know, done their own spin on it. And for the application that they're talking about, it might not even be accurate, but. Oh, hundred percent. So like, think about like, it's like jujitsu, right? So if a white belt is teaching a white belt how to do something, it may be okay. Um, if we think that the, the belt systems, but they may not think about the secondary and tertiary impact of that. So a lot of times you hear people like, okay, I want to go contribute or I want, uh, I guess I all this other day was um, I want to put tax free, uh, muni bonds in my retirement account because I don't want to pay taxes. You're right, actually, yeah, because if it's tax-free munis, you don't pay taxes at state, local, federal levels, but it's in a retirement account. It's sheltered. 
So you're actually hurting yourself by getting less returns for that tax-free side of things. Yeah. But it's like you're doubling down the benefits. So you're really actually, it's good, but it's not the best. Or it's okay, but it could be better, that kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah, I get that. That's the hard part about it. And especially in this industry, I mean, there's so many products and tools out there. That's the hard part of trying to figure it out. I think there's like probably, what, 50,000 different mutual funds? Like. That's tough. Yeah. That's tough to figure out and go through it. And you got a day job, right? Like, how do you go through that every day? Well, that's why it also helps to have someone, you know, at least provide their opinion, whether you get someone to do it for you or to just have someone to bounce ideas off of. But yeah, it's also like stacking the levels on top of it. Like, if no one does, if someone's, for example, if someone's not doing any retirement investing, you just start with, hey, like, just start adding to your 401k just to at least have something going in there. But then, you know, if you're with someone that's at a level two or three and they already have a 401k that's maxed out with their match, like then let's talk about a Roth, like, or let's talk about life insurance. Let's talk about something else. So you can stack it on top. It's not that anything, I mean, there are some things that you could say that are wrong, but I think it's just <clears throat> adding knowledge and adding new things on top of it and then making a new educated guess. Like I've changed my financial approach a few times in the past few years, but that's because I've been doing all this learning. So exactly. And it's, it's tough, right? So like, here's a good example of that. So you say, Hey, start saving for retirement. Okay. But there's a thing. I love this. I learned this from a, a the professor that taught all of our CF, or most of our CFP classes and his name's Brian Jackson. He's awesome. He runs the SMU program and he calls it the four horsemen of financial planning. So it has to be in this order. So it's, you know, three to six months of emergency savings, no matter what. Then it's eliminating credit card debt, then protecting your income, then retirement savings. So I have a, a couple of minutes of pro bono work with and they don't have retirement savings. So my first, first thought is, hey, retirement savings. But as you ask more and more questions, I see, okay, we actually have a lot of credit card debt we need to eliminate first because I can't guarantee a 17 to 22% return in the market to offset that interest rate. Yeah. But we know we could pay that down, knock that out real quick. And that's a really history of building wealth is getting rid of that debt. It's not always just you know clawing on your back. And once you get that monkey off your back, that financial freedom that just comes up is, is a great feeling. Honestly. Also, then when your credit score goes up, then you have more opportunities for loans, low rate loans to help you make other investments and you know, maybe get a rental property or something like that. Oh, I tell my friends, exactly. I tell my friends time and time again, I'm like, I swear it's easier to be a felon at times than have a bad credit score. Because you can't really do anything. It just, yeah, you can't do anything and you're paying you know, crazy interest rates and it just knocks you down, just takes you out. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'm just to jump, I guess, off this one specific conversation. Do you want to tell us how or when you decided you want to make the transition to doing this on your own and leaving the yeah. nine to five realm? Yeah. So um, it always been itching at me in the back of the head, you know, hey, do something a little different, do something a little different. And and I, I was fortunate to be able to get tapped on the shoulder to move multiple positions at the firms I was at. And I was like, man, she's not really feeling satisfied. Not really feeling it. Not really like this is cool. I'm learning a lot, but yeah. And then uh, one day I was working at my previous firm and I'm consulting with these advisors, helping them out. A lot of them were like, dude, you just need to do your own thing. You know, just, just do it. And then I kept talking to them and, I, and they kind of started, you know, not necessarily egging me on, but convincing me I should probably do this. And then also uh, there's a moment 
where I said, you know what, I can do this. So I spent about a year or so building the, this, you know, back of my head, kind of putting thoughts paper and then just took the leap really. And probably took it the right time, right before the market dropped and inflation shot up to, you know, over 10% in the real world. So that was a great time to do it. But honestly, it's a very rewarding feeling. There's definitely some late nights where you can't sleep, but that's just part of it. That's part of the fun. Well, so you, you were doing some planning and kind of got things to a point where you felt comfortable to make that jump. You didn't just no knowledge, no thought make a jump because that would probably have made it a little bit more difficult, right? Yeah. Especially this, because there, there's so many rules and regulations and processes you got to get in place. And it, it is a process. Certifications uh, you need to, well, I mean, not personal ones, but like things when you set up the business, right? You can't just start managing someone's money. You need to have some sort of credibility first. Oh yeah. So you have to basically like set up like an LLC in my case, that was the best way to go. Then register with the state then tell the state what I'm doing. And the state then does not it of my finances because it's Texas. That's the way they operate. Uh, each state's a little different Then I go, okay, cool. When they say, okay, what licenses do you have? Yeah. So at a minimum, you have to have what's called a series 65 to be an advisor. So the CFP thankfully overrides that. So I don't have to worry about that. Cause I, already had the sister one anyways, but to say, okay, cool. Like you have the licenses, you're okay to do it. And they do a background check. They go, okay, you're not a felon. You don't have any issues like that. Okay. Let's go look at your broker check, which is literally a permanent record that they told you about in school. Like you now have one. Okay. So they pull that up and then they say, okay, now you're ready to go. Okay. And it's a process. You have to write up what's called an ADV. It's about a hundred page form. And you have to say exactly what you're doing. You have to have that get approved and then you go and launch. And it's, it's a process. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but with Zencaster, the process becomes much easier. Zencaster is an all-in-one web-based solution that makes the process pretty painless and simple. Um, Zencaster allows to bring you guys, our listeners, the best quality by providing crystal clear audio and gorgeous HD video when we record with our guests. Uh, Zencaster is also easy to use for new users and guests. So, you know, when we have people on the podcast who haven't used a platform before, we pretty much just tell them to show up with a computer, mic, and uh, headphones, and you're pretty much good to go. Um, Zencaster is pretty plug and play. Uh, but from local recording to automated post-production tools, you don't even have to leave the browser to finish off your episode. Use the code zen.ai slash blackbox and enter our promo code blackbox. You'll get 30% off the first three months of Zencaster Pro. It's time to share your story. Wow. Yeah, no, I can, I, I can see it definitely being like, uh, like a bit annoying or maybe, maybe not necessarily a barrier to entry, but just like, like a challenge to overcome. But if the more, the more you think about it, the more you would want someone who has done all of this to be managing your money. So I guess I understand why it's in place. Um, but I actually had a question about, about your business specifically. Um, how would you describe your clients? Do you get clients from like you're from the Dallas Metro area or is it, could it be anyone from anywhere? Like what's your approach? Yeah. So fortunately being digital, uh, I have them all over the place. Uh, I have actually two clients I'm trying to get in Alaska. Um, 
because that's just cool, right? Yeah. Um, so they are kind of all over the place, and I'm very fortunate to partner up with a CPA firm that sends me a particular niche of clients. Uh, so that helps. And they're all local and family and friends. Uh, the, at the end of the day, when you're really working with an advisor, we'll have Zoom meetings, we'll have like coffee in person. You know, definitely want to have that face-to-face interaction, but so much of the business is done over the phone. It's been done like that for years. And then if you kind of think about it, you know, during COVID, Zoom meetings got very easy and very popular. Everyone kind of understood it. But also you kind of learned that, hey, I don't have to go take a half a day off of work to go see my advisor for an hour-long meeting where we say, hey, how are you doing? How are the kids doing? Oh, they're great. Okay, here's your portfolio. It's tracking as expected. Any changes? No. Okay. And then just yeah. talk, right? And that, that's, the, that's the fun part. Don't get me wrong. That is the fun part. It's catching up with everybody. But there's, it's, I don't want to waste someone else's day to come see me when we can have a quick phone call for 30 minutes or an hour. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to get dressed. You know, that, that's kind of how you make the better client experience. Um, yeah. Also, I know you were saying way back in the beginning when we started recording, uh, your target for clients is somewhere around the 10 million or less net worth. Will you take anyone on if the if the things look right and it doesn't fit that criteria? Or is it like you won't even really get those opportunities just because that's not what you're looking for and the people that are giving you those leads aren't know that you don't want that? No, so I I'm very okay. So this is actually a problem I had at a previous firm was this they would say, Oh, so and so has twenty five dollars to invest, you know, we don't want them. And as long as it's the right person with the right mindset, the right goals that they want out of life and it aligns with what I see for my clients, then absolutely. So I've actually gotten rid of my minimums and I'll say, Hey, you know, this may be a minimum fee we have just because of the amount of time it takes um, to get you stood up. But just to make it all clear for everybody, like, Hey, here's the minimum fee. Here you go. And yeah. then I can generally the minimum fee is about $1,500 a year or so just kind of depends on the situation if we can kind of swing it different ways, but we want to make sure everyone's taken care of. So it's always about having that conversation and then I'm investing in your future. And we look at it from a business point of view, right? My expectation is, okay, you know, I'm planning for you to be a profitable client, maybe 20 years down the road, but you're still getting taken care of and being taken care of appropriately. And I'm very okay with that. Um, Particularly during COVID when the stimulus checks came out, I don't know how many calls I had about, hey, how can I invest $600 or $300? And the previous firm I was at said, hey, you know, ignore those people. Send them an email. Tell them kick rocks. That's not appropriate. I mean, these are people that are having a very tough time, either don't have a job anymore or are watching the market at the steepest decline in history. We should spend the time to take care of them. And that's kind of part of why I started this. So. No minimums or anything like that. The minimum fee, man, we, we can always talk about it. It's kind of what I tell folks, and then we'll just see what happens from there. And, um, well, yeah, also I feel like that's, I mean, I guess I understand why your previous uh, place would say that, but at the same time, like, it was my first 500 bucks that I invested that got me to this point now. Like, it, it just gets the ball rolling. It's not like the return off that five or $600 is going to change your life. But then you're going to realize like, hey, over the long term in 30 years from now, I could have like a nice little bit of money waiting for me to retire when if I if I never invested that money to begin with, I probably wouldn't have anything saved. 
Exactly. And that's a big part of it is, you know, when working with an advisor, I tell folks all the time, I'm not always trying to beat the market. I'm trying to beat your benchmark. And then we do that by understanding your risk tolerance goals and what you want out of life. And then I say, okay, that's my job from the investment point of view. But a real big part of my job is actually about holding you accountable. And if I say, hey, we're going to do, you know, let's say $500 a month, right, for that $6,000 a year. I think that's the right math. Can't do math today. Um, But we say, hey, that's what we're going to get. Yeah, that's good. We're going to keep that drum beating. My job is to make it to where it's an automatic payment or to remind you that, hey, now's the time because it doesn't matter if the market's down. It doesn't matter if we're going to get nuked. Like, you know, hopefully I'm getting nuked by the time this goes out. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that time is going to keep going away. So that's my job is to kind of keep that drum beating to keep you getting invested because th- this whole secret is the more you put in, the more you get out of it. That's the whole secret of investing. Mm-hmm. The more time you have, the more it grows. So that's just, that's the whole secret. And that's my job is to help you understand that and then keep you accountable and take care of everything else as well. Got it. Um, all right. Ahmed, I got one more then you can ask your questions. Um, I guess what's uh, like a, an, how a normal conversation would go with your clients? Like whether it be a new client or you could say like one that you've been working with for a while, like what's the normal conversation? So I guess we can go through it like this. So, so I have a process. So I call the discovery meetings, the first step. And I always ask people these three hard questions. Um, and they're, they're good questions to ask. They're kind of fun for me because I get to learn a lot more about somebody because I'm genuinely interested in the individual. Mm-hmm. And I'll go, okay. So I'll ask, Hey, you know, you've won the, won the lottery. All of a sudden you have enough money to where you have to worry about money anymore. What does life look like? And we just have that discussion and we see what we can find and, and what happens. And everyone's usually pretty unique, but since trends come up about, you'll see travel and giving back and getting your family taken care of. And then I'll ask that. Then I ask, Hey, same situation. And you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know what? Uh, we found something, you have five to 10 years left to live. What would you do differently? We have that conversation again and see what we can find, see what we can go through. And then I ask the third question, which is always the hardest one. And I've cried, they've cried. It's, it's a very emotional question is, well, doctor called back again today and said, you know what? We've missed something. You've got a day to live. What did you do different? What'd you miss? What do you wish you did? And I'll go through that process there and we'll ask them. And that's generally how I get to know and start having a conversation with people. And then at that point, I once I kind of understand who you are, what your values are, then we start having more discussions about, okay, what's life going to look like? Um, do you want to buy a house? Did you pay off your house? Did you not pay off your house? Did you get a rental property? It becomes basically a quarterly meeting, just a quick check-in and seeing how people are doing. And honestly, every conversation is different, unique. And then we always do a yearly review. Hey, here's been your performance. Here's what you know you did. Here's what I did. And just kind of show everyone what happened. And then we just honestly catch up from there. Um, but it's all based on what the values that you want out of life and how do you make that work for you. Um, lately, I've been having conversations about paying off homes. And so I use a financial planning tool called Money Guide Pro, which I love a lot. And we can really use those questions. Should I pay off my home? And then we'll play with the math. And it's fascinating because of all the factors at play. For someone that's in a 
basically identical situations with one variable that's different, it may make sense to pay off their house or it may not. And those are those conversations that we have a lot too. It's just kind of, hey, what are you coming across? What are you seeing? And we just kind of play from it from there. So that's generally kind of how our conversations go. Thank you. Really cool. Um, I guess follow, follow up to that uh, is like besides the financial investments that that um, you're making together, uh, what like do you also provide advice for like f- spending habits or uh, like large purchases? Like are these things that are specialties in within your field, or do you think it's something that um, you're able to cover and that most others are also able to cover? I think it depends on where you are. So, so my firm, that's actually that we pride ourselves on and I pride myself on is we can have those conversations. A lot of the larger big box stores, you could say, don't have that opportunity. Their job is to bring in assets and that's it. Um, when we have those discussions about the big, you know, what's that big purchase going to look like or budgeting, uh, let's look at the, you know, the big purchase first, which is always the more fun one, right? Um, let's go look through that. Okay, can I afford this? Yes or no is the first question. Yes, cool. Go for it. Let's have some fun. No, okay. Well, why do we want this? Why do? What do we do now? Is ask five whys. This was what we learned from product development. Is like just always ask five whys. Ask that root cause. And because we had those hard conversations early on about your values. Well, the part of the fun for me is coming up with alternatives saying, Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, why do we want this? Okay, cool. Um, so I'm a big car guy and a big analogy I use is like, Hey, I want to be able to buy a Ford Porsche like 911. I'm like, that's cool. Why do you want it? Oh, they're cool. They're fun. I like the look. All right. Well, you can't afford the 911, but you can afford the 912 little four cylinder. Then maybe one day down the road, we go convert it to the, the V6 or whatever it is in there. They go, oh, okay, yeah. cool. That way you get the same why, right? So that's always the fun part. Um, the budgeting piece is always fascinating because I generally go with, let's see where you are today and where you're tracking against industry standards. And then what's what do you want out of life? Well, if you want to travel more, we got to pull a lever from somewhere else to have a less, either a smaller car payment, smaller mortgage, smaller rent. Or do you want to save more? And it's just kind of where do those levers go? And what do you want out of life? Um, I don't judge on spending. I had a friend of mine that I was helping out years ago. She spent about thousand dollars a month on boots or something crazy like that. It's like, hey, cool. Like if you want to do it, it's your life. It's your money. I'm not here to tell you how to spend it. Let's go make it work. As long as you can still reach your your goals at the end of the day. So that's what you're trying to do. You want to give them their goals while letting live the life that's going to make them happy. I guess right. Yeah, and it's like, hey, because I'm never going to tell anyone how to spend their dollar. Like, there's some advisors that it, it kind of happens to us, right? Like, we care about people who are like, why are you doing that? Like, why are you – but it's not my money. It's it's your money. Yeah. My job is to make it work. Um, also, I guess one quick question just for the audience. What's your definition of can you afford it? Is that just you have enough money around plus your bills are paid for the next month or something and you have everything, like, emergency fund taken care of? Or is there, like – some people have a ratio, like if I could buy this three times, then I can afford it. Or if I have this th- three times this values amount cash in my account, then I could afford it. So I look at it as 
what I look at it is my goal. So one is, is in the cash flow. So the three times, can I afford it three times? That's a really good number. I actually like that a lot. Um, if I buy this today, I have this thing where anytime I'm like spending money on a vice, like I go to the bar or something like that, I double it and tell myself I have to invest that second half. So can I afford twice the cost? You know, that's kind of how I think about it. And then simply, does it fit in my plan? You know, does it, I, that's kind of what I always go back to. And I tell everyone all the time, that's my crutch. You know, I'd rather be kind of right than absolutely wrong. And that's how I think about it like that. So if you're spending your money, look at where it's going. Think of the opportunity cost. Think of, let's say, if you're making $10 an hour, you're trying to buy a $100 whatever, that's 10 hours of work. Is it worth it to you that way? If you think about it from that lens, that may change your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, thank thank you for that. Uh, I guess, what are, what are some top, tips or tricks that you would say could help like just for some context our audience is typically people in their early to mid 20s um and with an entrepreneurial mindset uh hope or either trying to create their own thing trying to advance their careers what is something that you think um anyone at in this like at Wow. In that stage of their life should know. So there's a, there's a term that I always hate quoting Warren Buffett cause he's always overquoted, but there's a reason why. Yeah. Um, he had his teacher tell, told him this story in the forties or fifties called the story of Mr. Market. Have you guys ever heard this before? No, I haven't. I haven't either. So, so Mr. Market is the market. He's a stock market and there's lots of ways to you know go about Mr. Market is if you're young and you're an entrepreneur and you're saying, I'm going to get as much as I can. I'm going to really get those exponential returns. You can do it one of two ways. You can get in the head of a crazy person because Mr. Market's crazy, by the way. He's bipolar. Some days he's good. Some days he's bad. Generally has more good days than bad days. And you can spend all your time in the world getting in the head of Mr. Market, understanding exactly what he's trying to do and make some guesses. And hey, sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. But, you know, he's, he's a crazy person. Or you can spend your time working on what your unique needs are, your unique gifts and strengths are to focus on that, to get the exponential returns there. And then just keep being boring and putting money into like the S&P 500 or whatever and Mr. Market. And just know that generally he's going to go up long term because the earlier you do it, the longer you get that compounding interest. Yep. And it's substantial. And like here's some numbers off the top of my head. Uh, I was working with the lady. Uh, she's 34 and she didn't want to use insurance for her inheritance. So here's how strong the compounding interest is. If she puts in $6,000 a year at an 8% return, and we say generally you're going to die around 94, so that's 60 years of growth, that's $10.1 million or, or something like that. Substantial sum of money. Well, the new rules are as of today, if uh, you pass away, your inheritance is in an IRA, you have 10 years to take it out. Well, because it's in a Roth IRA, we can get 10 more years of tax-free growth. That turns into $17 million. In that. So you get an extra $7 million this last 10 years because it truly does grow exponentially. Yeah. So the sooner you do it, the sooner you can win, the sooner you can invest wisely with broad, you know, being diversified. Don't worry about trying to pick the next best thing because you're going to lose. It happens to the best of us. Boring mutual funds work. 
I mean, it, it just does. I saw a guy, he put in, uh, let's say $7,000 or so in the early 90s on a dividend growth fund. And then in 2012, when I started working in that cost basis department, uh, he was making $30,000 twice a year on dividends. I mean, the conversation was, hey, what kind of car are you going to buy? Because he's trying to buy a Cobra. And that's what we talked about. Not if you can afford it or not. It's, hey, you have two dividend payments that are going to come in soon. You can afford it. So Just off those. It's just right. being patient. Yep. And he didn't do anything. He just put it in there and said, I kind of forgot about it. So that's the trick. Don't try to time the market. You know, just put it in there. Dollar cost average. You can do some amazing, wonderful things with that growth and with that time. Do you... Do you think that there is a subset of people, though, that um, like whether it's interest, like, of course, it will be interest and um, like knowledge and learning. But some people that should go above and beyond from that, um, like like John had mentioned earlier, like there's day trading, there's swing trading, all of these different types of like market analysis based uh, investing. What are your, like, what do you think the criteria is for someone who could successfully do that and someone who would eventually get burned? So there, there are very, very, very few people in the world that have ever been consistently been able to outperform the market. Just, just the math on top of my head. It was like, the average equity trader has like a 4.8% return. The average equity fund has like a 10.1% return over the lifetime. Um, to have that skill set, you need to be able to take the risk. You need to be able to control what you can control and take advantage of that. And what I mean is you're, you're, you're playing with factors that are in billions of dollars. Like, so we heard about the guy with best, it was a best or uh Bed Bath and Beyond recently is yeah. oh since they made all this money well so and so also got twenty six million dollars from his parents and so and so got on the board because he had so much stock well that's a little bit different conversation than some guy just you know doing a yolo bet and making millions right now he is actually kind of involved in the company involved in decision making and then as soon as he sees out he tanked the stock so you, you got to think about it from that lens generally what I tell folks is if you try to time the market try to beat the market. You can do okay, and you can do well sometimes. You certainly can, but there's other times you can get absolutely burned because you're taking on so much risk without covering any downside that may be possible. And then also you have this too. Where's your time being spent? Could you be doing something else to be getting larger returns there? Let's say working construction and then just keep funneling money in the market, and your job is to make bigger and bigger and bigger construction projects or bigger buildings or you know, flipping real estate or something like that, maybe a bad example now, but using that and then saying, okay, the investments are building up my backstop. So it's it's a give or take situation. Me personally, like I like to say I'm in the industry and I'm fairly good at it. I do boring mutual funds and ETFs for my clients. That's what I do. And then if you have large stock positions from working from a company, I'll buy options just to cover the downside because it's a large portion of your account. If we sell it, the taxes are just such a huge tax that it's not really worth it. So is there a certain type of person? I, yeah. Do I know who they are? I hate to say that I don't. Um, but really being able to probably them kind of shoot from the hip, uh, have the influence somewhere, be able to find uh, lots of leverage 
as well and good leverage, basically not using your money, someone else's. Um, and then be really going to get educated and be willing to take that risk and, and be able to not sleep at night. I know when I was in the day trading stuff, I could sleep at night. It was too much stress for me. Yeah. I, I don't, what, do you think? what am I missing? No, oh no. I was just saying, I, I tried, you know, like keeping positions open overnight and stuff. And then I get started to get the same stress. So now I'll open and close a trade in the same day. Uh, I never really carry anything into the next day, but yeah, I just think it's, pretty much what you were saying before you just have to go after it might be better to go after what you're passionate about and for some people that may be like the trading itself but that's just a form of income generation so then you can funnel the money back into safer long-term investments i think that's the goal really no matter what you do at the end of the day yeah the idea so i have a, I have a uh i know of a story of a client who uh, made a really big deal on uh something he's working on and I think he made like a million dollar profit or something like that. He could have done that in the market. And he's talented. I will give him all the credit in the world. He is talented at what he does when it comes to it. Um, but there's no way he could have made a million dollars trading. He couldn't have had enough margin, leverage, options, and all that risk. Or he just had to happen to make a really good business deal. Well, the million dollar profit, like we were having this conversation earlier, um, I was playing around with rough, rough annuity numbers. I'm like, well, we do something like really rough. You get $22,000 a month, something like that. Something like really weird calculator. And I went, okay, well, that's a lot of money a month right there to then go now because you made that big deal to then settle back on that mailbox money and then keep moving it forward. So it's really, you can do both, but it's where your time best spent for you. And hey, if it's something you're passionate about and you're good at it, then try to find a way to get in a position where you're not trading your money, you're trading other people's money. And then if you're working at a mutual fund, you get a CFA, well, then you're really going to be getting paid exceptionally well or a hedge fund or a hedge fund. You can charge a 2% asset management fee and take 20% of the profits, not using your money. So if you can be good at it, show consistency, then use that to then go somewhere else and really make that, you know, excess returns and that exponential returns. Yeah. I think it's just like any other, like any other pursuit to for lack of a better term like whether it be a business or trading or whatever you just have to kind of be committed to the fact that there's going to be a handful of years where nothing really works for you and you're kind of just going to be failing and then at that point you could start to see things like work because then you spent those few years like gaining momentum taking in important knowledge filling in those gaps that caused you to have errors before yeah yeah, absolutely. And, you know, learning early is probably the best thing you can do. I was doing day trading in penny stocks and made a bunch of money, lost a bunch of money. And I think I broke even or like made a hundred dollars overall. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, for the stress, it wasn't worth it. My, for me, my time was better spent doing something else. And I didn't start losing hair till now. So I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> no, the stress definitely gets high at times, but yeah, it's still like a hobby teetering on, you know, some extra income for me. It's not like a main pursuit. I'm, I still have a day job, but that, no, that no, is the goal. Fun. What? It's fun. It's yeah, fun. I enjoy it's it too. To yeah. It's fun. It's so much fun doing it. It's so I, I get it. Well, it's also I just, totally get it. let's say at the end of the day, like I don't continue to move forward with it and I stop at some point. 
all the extra little tidbits of knowledge that I gained about the market and trading and like how the world economy balances itself out, all that knowledge will can easily help me long term, like in terms of building my wealth anyway. So it's a win win, really. No. Yeah. Absolutely. So that education piece, right? We were talking about earlier about that fifth discipline. That's that's everything. Like um, something I tell a lot of folks is like I call them like the six key behaviors of uh, building wealth is like number one is faith in the future. You know, we know it's going to get better. We don't know when. You know, number two is being disciplined. I'm sorry, not actually being patient. It's in this order. It's being patient and saying, okay, you know, I know it's going to get better. I just don't know when. Like we're talking about earlier about the kind of rebalancing. And then three is being disciplined. You know, I get lots of flack for this, but like not investing in Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin, not like the hot thing, just investing in what's always worked. Mm -hmm. And then it comes down to, okay, what's your right asset allocation? You have stocks, bonds, cash. And then you go from there, then it's okay. Am I diversified? And like, if you look at like mutual funds, for example, you start digging into them. A lot of them own Apple. A lot of people own way more Apple than they ever realized. Um, so being diversified and then actually rebalancing your account. So you were saying that you close everything out at the end of the day. Think about it. You know, let's say like a lifetime scale of someone that buys like, you know, Apple or GE or whatever, but they're not rebalancing their accounts appropriately. Yeah. yeah. To save that a proper asset allocation. That's also something else you don't really hear about often. But if you do those six behaviors in that order, you can do pretty well and do pretty well in life on top of everything you've been learning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. You, you wouldn't want to sell and open up all your positions in a long term account every day because then that. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could make money, but also you'd be. It would be short-term capital gains every day, so all your gains would get short-term capital or taxed at that rate. But um, oh, oh. taxes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it screws up other things, such as security. You know, other things you have going on. It can eat you alive without even realizing it. Yeah, I only do that for my trades, which I only take of two to three trades a day anyway. But um, I guess because we're we're getting up on fifty minutes here, I wanted to say, what's where do you want to see? Uh, like what you're building now, like where do you want it to go in the next five years or 10 years? Like what's your goal? Oh, that's a good question. So, so here, so with Woodall Wealth Management, my goal is to, because right now it's just me, is to have five to, you know, five to 10 advisors, let's say, with the same mindset that, hey, the idea is to build, you know, trust and relationships with our clients, not to sell a tool or product. That's not what we're here to do. And then with those, leverage the network that we've created for our clients. Because I like working with the business side of folks. Is say, hey, you know, person A over here has this, you know, company. Person B over here has this company. Let's make an introduction for you guys. Uh, when I worked at a previous company in their family office area, that was one of the unique value adds that I always loved. I thought that was brilliant. So that's what I'm trying to do here as well. And then continue to build that network and continue to educate as many people as we can on just proper, boring wealth building. Because at times, not all of us have the ability or the risk to do the day trading or buying out options or anything like that. So how do we affect the lives of 50 million Americans? That's by educating them and then having our clients pay for us to then spend the time doing this and having a lot more fun and getting them taken care of as well. That's kind of the goal and the mission. I really like that. You're doing it for the right reasons. You're not just trying to, you, like, you're hoping to see that prosperity through 
building a solid foundation and doing it the right way from the ground up, not from the jump, trying to just get as much assets under management and then tack or take a percent fee off people. Absolutely. And I think you gotta be there for your clients too. Right. And like, I'm trying to even change because I like the way USAA does. They call them like members, not clients. I'm trying to call them like families or, or what have you. But like the people that we support here is that's kind of the mission is, Hey, how do you take care of them for life? I know money can be a huge stressor for a lot of folks. It's like the number one or two reasons for divorce. Yeah, it's number one, I think. Yeah, and then how do you have that? How do you create an environment for others to succeed? And that's how I know how to do it. So let's do it and do it the right way. It's certainly harder to do it the right way, but definitely sleep a lot better at night. That's for sure. Yeah, 100%. Well, I I actually have one last one last quick question, uh, a bit of a selfish question though. Um, so, was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> how? What do you recommend for for people who have large amount, like large percentages of their assets, all in like in one basket, but it's not really by choice? And by that, I mean. Like if, like you were saying before, you have clients that will receive like company stock, like what is the best way to manage that risk, even if you do believe in the long-term growth of that company? So I'll be careful. So a quick disclaimer will be like, hey, this, you know, you guys, if anyone listens to this and takes action. Not official on, financial advice, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 all that fun stuff. Um so let's say it's, is it a, is it like a mutual fund or is it like a stock or is it like, like what exactly? Cause there's actually lots of ways to go. Um, so it's just stock, like individual stock units. Um, and they're like, they're, they'll be granted as part of your compensation package. Um, and I'm speaking very generally, I, I could say like for part of my compensation package, it will be it replaces salary with stock, but which is which is great if you believe in the long term growth of the company. But then you have you could have like a a large percentage of your investments all in the same thing. So what like what do you recommend people do, or does it also depend on the situation? So it always depends on the situation. So let's say. I'm just gonna use Apple as an example because I like beating up on Apple. I mean, it's it's, it's basically say, an Apple equivalent, so you could you could just say Apple, and then it, you could treat <laughs> it the same way. Yep, we'll treat it the same way. So, so the risk is you live and die financially by your company two different ways: your day to day income, and also your future growth and income, and retirement savings. So, how do you diversify the way the risk? So, if you have the ability, you're allowed to. Uh, not to short the company stock, but to actually maybe buy put options. So that way, if it goes down, you know, you could make that profit back. You have that to protect from the downside. Um, or if it's other company stock, you, you might just be beholden to it. There might not be a lot to do it other than any of your other investments have nothing to do with that sector or that part of it. Uh, good example is Enron, right? Um, so like my mom worked for a subsidiary of Enron and everyone's like, Oh, we're going to put all of our retirement savings in this. We're going to put, you know, everything It's all we're going to buy. And we look what happened to Enron, right? They're a meme at this point. Yeah. Um, 
So basically all your other investments should avoid that company for sure. And then try to do everything you can. So there's things called SMA, separately managed accounts that we do for folks where they are basically designed to have everything else but that company in there. So protect against the downside. It's that rule number, what, two or three, or I'm sorry, four, uh, being diversified. Well, five, there we go. So just being diversified away from that. Okay. That's a good way to kind of help do that. And then, I guess there's no situation where you could like sell some of that stock and transfer it somewhere else without like having to pay taxes on it, right? Like as soon as you make that sale, you'd have to probably pay unless it was already it in. Depends. Well, it depends what account it's already in, but I think it's just in a regular brokerage. So yeah. it's a regular brokerage. It could be a uh, non-qualified stock option. It could be a qualified stock option. It then depends on the taxes on there. Either way, the IRS is going to get their cut. It yeah. just depends on how much and when. Um, you so either defer it, yeah. Point of view, yep, you got to find how do you get rid of it. You know, does it make sense to sell it? Does it not? Because I've seen people do exceptionally well owning one company stock for 50 years and then also the opposite. So it's just how much do you believe in this company? How much do you expect them to stick around? How do you diversify away and manage that risk? And are you, uh, yeah. Yeah, are you tough. willing to put your financial future at the hands of this one company? Correct. <laughs> Correct. And hey, if it's a good company, they can do their thing for decades. They've shown consistently good growth. It's not always the worst idea to believe in them. As a from a business owner point of view, that's the best way to do it from for your employees is to say, hey guys, you are part owners in this business. In fact, I'm a huge believer in that for my business owners is the employees that are business owners or are, are part of the business, they have shares. They're going to work harder. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in that. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a dance, a little bit of a balance. When do you sell? When do you not sell? You know, and you got to follow the rules based on the stock options you have. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I hope that helped. <laughs> I mean, in a vague way, I hope that helped. <laughs> I, I, di- I did think that you, you and John Duffy hit on some good points there. Um, but uh, I, I would say like the, in summary, stay diversified. Yep. Can't awesome. Stay diversified. And if it's a leader in a particular sector, um, maybe it drags down the rest of the sector. Maybe not be invested heavily in that area as well. Diversify that risk away. Of course. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, James, for, uh, for being a guest on the black box podcast. Um, you all know where to find us at Black Box Podcast, Noe in the Black on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Uh, James, yeah. thanks. Do you want to add anything real quick before we wrap up? Yeah, plug anything you want, social medias. Yeah, you guys have been amazing. Med, John, you guys are great. I would love to come back on. Um, it's Definitely. been an absolute blast listening to you guys. And then um, any plugs? Let's see. My website's woodallwealthmanagement.com. I have some free guides and checklists on there that I use for my clients if I don't know an answer. So I put some up there just to hey, keep spreading the information and hopefully it helps some people out. Thank you. you got so Instagram much. or anything? Or no? Wait, no, I do have an Instagram now. I'm learning <laughs> how to do social media. I'm Let's go. <laughs> uh, yeah, what's, what is I think it's at woodallwealthmanagement on Instagram. Um, and you don't see any posts on there because I have – no idea what to put up there yet, so figuring that out slowly. Yeah, get some graphics going. 
<laughs> I know. I'm just going to get some like, cool like, Microsoft Office graphics and just drop them in there left and right. You could also do Canva. That That's really nice yeah, to use like for Instagram Canva. posts. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. You know what? I might, I might do some Canva this weekend <laughs> after football. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or during football. <laughs> oh, you got to watch the games. That's where the fun is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And then this whole new wave of sports betting. All right. Sorry. We got to wrap the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, James. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Y'all have been great. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time. Oh, my God.